You know, there's a lot of things in this life that are not what they seem to be. For instance, you've seen it, you've experienced it. It's called airplane food. It's the food part that, you know, gets you. It's really not what you were thinking. You know, they ask you, do you want the beef or you want the chicken? And then when it comes, it's like, I don't think it was either, you know. I don't know what this is. Here's some others, though. I don't know. You might know this. I didn't know some of these. A firefly is not a fly. It's a beetle. A prairie dog is not a dog. It's a rodent. A lead pencil contains no lead. It contains graphite. A funny bone is not a bone. It's a spot where the ulnar nerve touches the humerus. Chop suey? is not a native Chinese dish. It was invented by Chinese immigrants in California. And a cucumber is not a vegetable. It's a fruit. There are certain things that just are not what they seem to be. Another one that comes to my mind is, if you've ever been inside or seen the inside of a Hummer, from the outside, it looks humongous. But they're really not that big and spacious on the inside. And there's a lot of things that we can experience and go through in our life where we thought, hey, I thought this was going to be like this. And then you come to discover that really it turns out like that. Well, that's where we find David tonight here in 1 Samuel chapter 18. You would think, and he might think, that things are beginning to go in a certain direction in his life and some of the things that he was hoping for and some of the things that he was longing for are going to start to happen and it looks like it's going to start to go that way. But then it takes a big turn. He gets a humongous, what you might call, curveball thrown at him that, that, that is really meant to kind of take his knees out from under him. Let's watch and let's see what happens here. We, we left off with David having killed Goliath, having that, that monster victory in the Valley of Elah, becoming King Saul's armor bearer, a close uh, confidant, if you would, next to the king, becoming also his personal musician because of this distressing spirit that was coming upon King Saul. And a special friendship with the king's son, Jonathan, is developing. And we read in our study last time in, in chapter 18, in the first part of it, that David was prospering. We saw, if you notice in verse 5, it says, so David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely, Underline that. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. David began to prosper. Things started to go his way. Things started, in one sense, to seem like they were falling into place. We also saw in verse 14, it said, and David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw say that a bunch of times. Saul saw that he behaved very wisely. He was afraid of him. And the idea there is that he began to eye him. He began to look at him. And this is where things begin to turn. You see, this becomes the heart of the problem because Saul becomes insanely jealous of David. And in his insane jealousy, he seeks to kill him. Jealousy can lead a person to do some crazy things. It was F.B. Meyer who said, among the most terrible of human sins is jealousy. The parent of the darkest and blackest crimes that have disgraced the annals of our race. Jealousy. Remember a few years ago, it was jealousy that led that mother in Texas to try to have a cheerleader on the high school team killed because she made the team and her daughter didn't. It was jealousy. It was that jealous rage, although he wasn't convicted, but I think most of us believe that he was guilty. It was the jealous rage, I'll I'll put it this way, that that was the accusation made towards O.J. in the killing of his wife and Mr. Goldman. Jealousy can cause you to do 
some crazy things. It was jealousy that prompted Cain to kill his brother Abel. But listen, jealousy can be overcome because the Lord came to Cain. And he said to him, Cain, sin lies at the door of your heart and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In other words, what the Lord was saying there to Cain is is that this doesn't have to consume you. You can rule over it. It doesn't have to rule over you. It doesn't have to, Cain, get the best of you. But Cain didn't listen. He didn't heed those words. And neither does Saul. It grows worse and worse. Saul's jealousy until it's absolutely out of control. We'll pick it up in verse 17. It says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now what happens next is that we begin to see a series of attempts by Saul to kill or to have David killed. This is the first. He wants to send him out into the battlefield. Now, Saul owed David a daughter for a wife. Remember, that was the reward for killing Goliath. He had made the proclamation, whoever can bring down the giant, I will let him have one of my daughters for a wife. And so he owed that to David and he promises Mirab here to be the one who would be the the reward, if you would. But he wants further performance from David. He says to David, he says, be valiant for me. Go out into battle, in other words, over the Philistines. Be valiant for me, and then you can have Mirab. Now, this might have seemed like a gesture of kindness and goodness on Saul's part to David. Saul wanted David to believe that all was forgiven, that all was forgotten. Remember, we just read last week where Saul was throwing spears at him, trying to pin him to the wall. And David might have been thinking, you know, that that he threw two spears at me before, but, you know, that's over now and that today's a new day and, you know, God forgives and let's move on. But in Saul's heart, we see here that it was a completely different motive, entirely different motive. Let, he says, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. What Saul was doing here was pure manipulation. Manipulation tries to maneuver people and events to accomplish a hidden agenda. This is what Saul was seeking to do. He takes advantage of David's loyalty and patriotism by saying, only be valiant for me. And he takes advantage of David's courage and heart for the Lord by saying, and fight the Lord's battles. And all this was manipulation, but manipulation will never be blessed by God. God can never honor manipulation. And so Saul is seeking to send David out into the battle, out into the fight that he might get struck down, that he might get killed. And David, at this particular time, he really is is giving Saul, King Saul, the benefit of the doubt here. Now, in Titus chapter one, verse 15, it says to the pure, all things are pure. And David was so innocent in his heart, he was so pure in his heart that he thought nothing of this request. In fact, we learn from his response in verse 18 that he didn't feel worthy of such reward. Notice verse 18 says, So David said to Saul, Who who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? He's saying, you know what? I know what you said back there about, you know, if, if I killed Goliath, I would get one of your daughters. But really, king, I come from a lowly family. Really, king, I'm no one to be the son-in-law of the king. It's not right for me. He was a man of humility, David was. Pure in heart. A pure in heart. To the pure, all things are pure. But Titus 1.15 also goes on to say, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. And that was Saul. He was defiled through and through by his bitterness and by his jealousy. 
So David is thinking here, things are looking up again, and just when he's ready to relax, just when, he, when he's ready to think that everything is going great, he discovers that they weren't what they seemed. We pick it up in verse 19. But it happened at that time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, as a wife. So David gets ripped off again here. Now, Machel, or Machal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And so Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. Now, it shouldn't surprise us here that that Saul's second daughter, Michal, that was was attracted to David because of his character and because of his physical qualities and because of his his fame. David was a catch. But it's evident later in David's marriage to her that she was really not attracted to David's heart. She wasn't attracted to his heart. God said of David, this guy is a man after my own heart. That's David. But that's not what drew McCall to David. It wasn't his heart. She was attracted by everything else. And I want to say this to those of you who are single here tonight, that it's the heart. It's that heart for the Lord. That's the key. You see, fame, looks, wealth, that doesn't matter. Looks fade. Wealth, you can be rich one day and dirt poor the next. Things can crumble that quickly. Things can change that fast. But it's the heart that remains. It's the heart that saying that that heart for the Lord. You can't change. Remember what Jesus said of Mary as she was sitting there at his feet? Martha, she was running around the kitchen, distracted with much serving, serving the Lord. And, and Jesus said this to Martha. He said, Martha, you're distracted. You're busy. You're, you know, by all these different things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen the better part. And then he said this, and it won't be taken away from her. Listen, who you are becoming in Jesus Christ who you are developing into as a man or woman of God, no one can take that away from you. No one can change that. No one can take that away. The, the looks, uh, you know, all of us who are older, we understand it fades, it changes. The wealth can come or go. But who you are in Jesus is what matters. That's what matters the most. And for those of you who are single, I would encourage you Don't forget that. Guys, you can find a gal that, man, she could be model material on the outside, but if she's, if it isn't happening in here, it's for naught. It's for naught. Gals, you can find the guy that just is the, the stud muffin, you know, on the outside, or he's got the bucks and, and, but, but if he isn't that man, of God that you need and desire. That's only good for a short time. And then you'll find yourself frustrated. So set your sights, set your standards on on who that person is in here. Get to know that. Be attracted to that. Fall in love with with who that person is in Jesus Christ and the fellowship and the communion and how that person stimulates you in Jesus. That's the type of person that you want to be married to. That's the type of person that that, that can develop and help you to have just a, a very fulfilled and satisfying and lasting marriage relationship. That's not what was attracting Saul's daughter to David. 
Now, Saul knew that his daughter's character and heart, and he knew, as he says here, that she would be a snare to him. And it turned out to be the case. We'll read later on in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's one of the greatest days in Israel. The ark is coming home. David's leading the praise and worship. He's there in the very midst of the throng of the congregation as they're entering into the city with the ark of the covenant. He's dancing, he's leaping, he's praising God. And where is Saul's daughter, where is David's wife? She's not down with the people. She's not in the crowd. She's not in the midst of the time of worship. She's not in the midst of that setting where just they're, they're just excited and exuberant about, about what God is doing and who God is and his presence there. And there. She's up in the balcony looking down and she despises her husband, it says. And the word tells us that she was barren. She was barren. Because of that, for the rest of her days. That's what happens. Her heart for the Lord wasn't the same as David's. Now, wives, those of you who are married, a word for you tonight. You can be either a blessing or a snare to your husband. And God brought you together so that you could be his helpmate, that you could be his partner, that you could be his encourager. And that's what God wants you to be. And you will be that if you are submitted to the Lord, but you will be a snare if you are always putting him down and constantly critical and tearing apart with your words and always discontent, you'll be a snare to him. You'll be that thing in his life that trips him up and that hinders him from being the the man that God really, truly desires that he would be. A snare or a blessing? It's up to you and your actions. We pick it up in verse 21. It says, therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. So plan number two is now to bring down David is underway. Plan number two to bring him down is underway. We, we continue on verse 22. It says, and Saul commanded his servants communicate with David secretly and say, look, the king has delight in you. And all of his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. And so Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am poor and lightly esteemed? Man, what he's talking about here, we see again his humility, but also the fact that, that David's thinking here, you know, I come from a family, I can't afford to pay a dowry. For the king's daughter. That's what he's talking about here. We get that from it says, and then the servants of Saul told him, saying in this manner, David spoke. And then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemy. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. Saul's thinking here, okay, you know, I don't want your money. I want you to go out, kill a hundred Philistines and bring me their foreskin. Kind of a morbid thing here. But check it out. Verse 26. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well. He's like, all right. I can go take down a hundred Philistines. It pleased him well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired and therefore David arose and he went, he and his men, and he killed, check this out, 200. He's like, king wants a hundred. I'm going to bring him 200. 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. So Saul finds that he's foiled again a second time. He's thinking here, man, what is it going to take to bring this kid down? What is it going to take to get rid of this kid? The problem was, and Saul should have caught this, he should have understood this, God's hand was on David. There was a destiny. There was a a, a place for, for David. And nothing was going to get in that way. I remember Pastor Brian talking about traveling at 
different times over to Israel and going with Pastor Chuck and and being asked, you know, are, are you afraid? It's kind of hairy over there right now. And his response was, well, I know God's not through with Chuck. And so I, I, don't, I can't, you know, think the plane's going down. Well, that, that, that's kind of the idea here. You know, is there was nothing that was going to get in the way. Saul wasn't going to be able to, to bring David down because, because God had raised him up for a special purpose and a special time. We pick it up in verse 28. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. And so Saul became David's enemy continually. And then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly Esteem. David is a wonderful picture in this chapter for us of a man who is walking in the spirit and God's hand is upon him, which is why we are told in verse five that he behaved wisely. And then in verse 14, that he behaved wisely in all of his ways. And then in, again, in verse 14, that we're told that he behaved very wisely. And then here at the end of, of verse 30, at the end of the chapter, that it says that David behaved more wisely than all of the servants of Saul. He was walking in the spirit, being led by God, and God's hand was upon David. But things are about to get more intense. The fire is about to get turned up. The heat is on. The attack is underway. But what we see in this next chapter is how the Lord brings four different entities into David's life to help him cope and to help him keep perspective. And I suggest to you that these same four entities are important to have in our lives to help us cope when storm clouds are rolling in, when the heat is on. We pick it up, verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. And so Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. And then what I observe, I will tell you. And thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you and because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without cause. The first entity that we see a man needs when the storm clouds are rolling in, when the heat is being turned up, is a strong and loyal friend. And that's what Jonathan was to David. A strong and loyal friend. We've already noted some things about Jonathan's friendship to David. There in chapter 18, how he gave David his robe and his sword and his armor. And here we see that that friendship is progressing. And what we find that Jonathan is beginning to do here and that he'll continue to do is to stand in the gap for David. And that's what a friend does. He stands in the gap. Notice how he does that. I want to note four things. Number one, he warns David of his father's intentions. Jonathan was a faithful friend, faithful to stick up for David. He wasn't a fair weather friend. No, Jonathan goes to David and he warns him. He tells him to hide out until I can get to the bottom of this. You go hide out until I can figure out what is going on and why my dad is acting in this type of way. Now, Jonathan could have said, look, I want no part of this. I'm not going to help my father to do something that I know is wrong, but I'm not going to stop it either. I'm just going to leave it in God's hands. I'm just going to be neutral. Jonathan could have done that, but he didn't take that attitude. He was a faithful friend and he went to warn David of his father's intentions. Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life 
for his friends. That's what a friend does. And that's what Jonathan is clearly doing here. He's clearly willing to risk his own life for his friendship, to stand in the gap for his friend David. The question that I think comes up sometimes here is how could Jonathan be justified in disobeying his father? Because Saul, his father and king, commanded him to do something that that was clearly disobedient to God. That's the answer. How could he be justified? Saul was asking Jonathan to do something that went against God's will. Jonathan knew the Ten Commandments. He knew that it, it said there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. And this is the key. Jonathan could be justified in disobeying his father because he was submitting to a higher authority. You know what? You and I, we are people under authority. All of us here. We are under authority and commanded to submit to God's order of authority in many different areas of our lives. For instance, there's a submission of children to their parents. There's a submission of wives to their husbands. There's a submission that we are to live under the authority of our government. There's a, an authority that you have in your life. For those of you who have jobs, you are under the authority of your employer if you aren't self-employed. We all have people and, and, and institutions of authority that are over us, yet even in all of those relationships, we are never excused from sin because we obeyed an authority that told us to sin. Because first and foremost, we are under the authority of God. We live under a higher authority. And that's what allowed Jonathan to disobey his dad because he was responding to and he was obeying God. He was basically acting in the same mindset and frame as the apostles when they were told to stop preaching. And they said, ought, we ought to obey God rather than man. That's who our first authority is. So the first thing we see is that that he warns David of his father's intentions, a second way that Jonathan stood in the gap is that Jonathan spoke well of David to his father in verse four. Jonathan did more than secretly help David with information, but he spoke well of David to Saul, his father. In other words, what Jonathan does here, he goes on record. He goes on record to say, look, dad, you've got the wrong idea here. He went on record. Jonathan let Saul know, Father, you have a certain opinion of David, but I don't share that opinion. I love and support David and you should also. It was wonderful for Jonathan to support David secretly when it was just him and David. That in itself was a, a beautiful gift. It was a wonderful thing, but it was another thing for Jonathan to support David before others and before those who were against David. And that's what a real friend does. A real friend will go on record. A real friend is not going to let someone else bag on or trash talk or put down their friend. No, that those are fighting words, you know, it's that kind of thing. You're out and somebody starts, you know, kind of bagging on somebody else. And it's like, you know, wait a second. You don't know what you're talking about. I had that happen to me once. I was at lunch with a couple guys in the church and one of them started going off on one of the, the guys on our, our staff here. And I, and I just probably got in the flesh, but I, I, I laid into him. I mean, it was like, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You know, this is a great way to keep yourself out of those gossip circles. Defend your friends. Stand for your friends. I remember it was said of Romaine, who he was for many, many years, Pastor Chuck's, you know, right hand guy, that you better not speak ill of Pastor Chuck to Romaine. It would be ugly if you did. But I know Pastor Chuck appreciated that. You know, that friendship and that type of relationship. 
The third way that that Jonathan stood in the gap is that he challenged his dad not to sin. Again, in verse four, he said, let not the king sin against his servant. Now, Jonathan was bold enough to tell his father that his anger and his jealousy against David was sin. And to say he, David, has not sinned against you. You see, Saul, in a weird, morbid type way, felt that David had sinned against him in some manner, and he felt that it was his righteous cause. He was trying to rationalize and justify his actions. But Jonathan calls a spade a spade, and he says, look, Dad, this is sin. You're sinning, you're blowing it, and and you need to stop. Goes on record. He stands in the gap by telling his dad not to sin. And number four, In verse 5, Jonathan reminded Saul of God's hand upon David. How David took his life in his own hands when he killed the Philistine. Now, why did Jonathan remind Saul of these events? Had Saul forgotten? No. It wasn't that Saul had forgotten them, but it was because Saul had spun these events with a meaning that justified his jealous desire to murder David. And basically suggesting that that this was all part of David's plan to usurp his authority. Jonathan is trying to bring Saul back to reality. And he reminds his father, look, you saw it. You saw it when David went out and he took his life into his hands and you rejoiced like the rest of us. So Jonathan shows himself to be a great and loyal friend standing in the gap for David. The result of Jonathan's intervention we see in verse 6. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things. And so Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in the presence or in his presence as in time past. We read here that Saul heeded Jonathan's voice. What we see here is that Saul, listen closely, has a change of mind, but not a change of heart. And listen, true repentance involves both a change of your mind, a turning from your sin, adjusting your attitude and a change of heart. That's what true repentance is. Saul has here only a change of mind but not a change of heart. There's remorse, but not repentance. And this will be a reoccurring thing with Saul. And this is why his life just continues to be a a mess. Is there's a change of mind, but not a change of heart. Little side note here. We see that Jonathan stood in the gap for David because David was a great guy. And Jonathan delighted in him. He gave up everything in order to help his friend. But I want you to consider tonight. I want your heart to be blessed tonight that Jesus stood in the gap for us when we weren't great guys. We weren't great gals. We were full of sin. We were full of rebellion. And yet he stands as our advocate to defend us, not based upon what we have done, but it's based upon what he did for us. He stands in the gap for us, even to this day, even to this moment. We pick it up, verse 8, verse chapter 19. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow. And they fled from him. And now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing music with his hand. Now, this is the third time this distressing spirit has come upon Saul. And then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. And here is the third time that he does this. But he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. And so David fled and escaped that night. And Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so Michal let David down through a window and he went out and fled and escaped. This brings us to consider the second entity in David's life at this point. An entity that every man needs in the midst of a fire. If he is married, what does he need? A supportive wife. 
And since McCall was Saul's daughter, this was a conflict of loyalties for her, just like her brother Jonathan. Should she act in her father's interest or should she act in her husband's interest? She makes the right choice acting in her husband's interest and supports her husband, David. And she's really acting here according to the principle found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And though this passage there in Genesis, it speaks specifically to the husband, it expresses a principle that applies to both partners in a marriage, that the former family loyalties and obligations take a backseat to the loyalty and obligation in that new family, the relationship between the husband and the wife. And you know what? This is a oftentimes a huge reason for problems in a marriage is that one or both of the the spouses still have their, you know, umbilical cords attached to mom and dad. They haven't cut the apron strings. They're still dependent. They're still mom and dad are so much very, very involved, you know, in their lives and their opinions and and all of that. And it's a big source of of problems. And, and, and what ends up happening is that the, the, the spouse, the, the husband, the wife, they don't know where their loyalties lie. And so they struggle. And there's problems. McCall helped David by warning David, and David did well to receive this warning from his wife. You know, guys, sometimes we can be so prideful. Our wives try to tell us something, and we're thinking, what does she know? We're thinking, you know, what what does she know in this? We can be so prideful in that way. We can be so hard-headed at times. Failing to realize, failing to understand how God seeks to work and to use our wives. If David had ignored this warning because he didn't like the source, he would have ended up dead. And guys, we need to realize, those of you who are married, we need to understand, we need to realize that God has brought your wife into your life for a reason, to be your partner, to be your helpmate. And you need to listen to her. In fact, guys, let me tell you something. Gals, tune out for a second, but guys, listen close to this. One of the greatest things that you can do for your wife that that speaks to her about how you feel about her is when you, by your actions, let her know that you respect her relationship with the Lord. And what I mean by that is that you are letting your wife know that, hey, I believe and I know God talks to you. And I'm interested in knowing what He's saying to you. That's why... I rarely ever, in fact, I don't think I ever have, made a big decision without my wife and I praying together and then also praying separately and coming together. And I'm always, okay, what has the Lord been showing you? Because I know he can speak to me, but at the same time, oftentimes he's going to confirm what he's speaking to me through her. And if it and if the two don't match up, then it's okay. We need to pray some more. Because one of us isn't hearing right. And, and, you know, several times it's been me. But guys, what an incredible thing it is for your wife that when you are communicating to her, look, I value your opinion. I value your walk with the Lord. I value what, what, what God is, is, is seeking to speak to you on these things. I get so blessed by the things that my wife shares with me in, from her devotions and things that God is showing her and things that the Lord, you know, is teaching her or things that, that He's putting on her heart about, about our family. Sometimes she's much, much better at quieting herself to listen to the voice of the Lord than I can be at times. I can get so distracted. And guys, it's such an incredible thing that speaks volumes to your bride when she knows, you know, he values my walk with the Lord. And because of that, he values my opinion. My wife sometimes. Or or another reason I would say that this is wise to listen to our wives, to value their opinion is because 
they will speak or share from a perspective that we don't see. My wife will share things that that I never thought about just because she's a woman. I love to get together with the guys on our leadership team. We met last night and just had a wonderful time discussing, talking, and praying about stuff going on in, in our church and stuff for the future. And I love these guys. I love to meet with them. Guys like Oscar Abad and Steve Henschel and Eddie Hill and Howard and Bob Page and Tom. And I love to meet with these guys. I love to hear their hearts. Mike, Mike Dunn. But it's interesting because sometimes as I talk with them, God really uses them to expand my vision. I might go into a time that we're having together and and I'm like this. I'm kind of tunnel vision. You know, I'm only seeing one part of the issue and story. And then then all of a sudden they'll start sharing and it'll it'll open up for me. It'll expand. And God will use those guys in that way. But, you know, I've had this happen many times where I'll be talking to my wife about something going on, and she'll have an opinion. And I'll say, well, you know, the guys thought it was okay, or the guys thought it was a good idea. And then she'll say, well, they're all men. <laughs> they're all men. And, and, and then she'll come from an angle that is completely different. And that's why when it comes to, you know, the putting together and organizing of this new facility, there are certain aspects of it that that we really, really want to hear from some of the ladies, you know, <laughs> like the women's bathroom. You know, it's like we know that's an important room in that church. Amen, ladies. <laughs> so David showed wisdom and heeding the warning of his wife. But at the same time, McCall spoke to David wisely because she could have said, here's the problem and let me tell you what to do. But she doesn't do that. She just says, look, here's the problem and you need to do something. And she shows herself here as a supportive wife, warning and helping David, but her help is flawed and it stems from her lack of trust in the Lord. Quickly, verse 13. And McCall took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair on for its head and, and, and covered it with clothes. This might have been the first, you know, idea that this uh, time this ever happened or where the idea comes from. You know, put the pillow under the covers, you know, kind of thing like we see in the movie. So that's what they're doing here. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, bring him to up to me in bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered and said, he said, let me go. Why should I kill you? And so what she does is she takes this image. The image was referred to as a teraphim. And so it was a a figurine used as a household idol or as a fertility good luck charm. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, also had a teraphim called the household idols in Genesis chapter 31, verse 19. But in the godly reforms of Joshua, he prohibited the use of these household idols and, and, and making it very, very clear that, that God's people had no business associating with these type of things. But this was a, an indication of where McCall's heart was at, that her heart wasn't right with the Lord. Instead of just telling the truth and saying that David escaped or, or going even further and standing up for David like Jonathan, she resorts in the flesh to try to cover this up. And then she tries to cover one lie with another by saying, you know, if I didn't let him go, he was going to kill me. And this backfires. This only fuels the fire of Saul. It only gives him more vindication and, and, and justice in his mind or justifying why he could kill David. And this also shows something of the depth and the outwardness, really, of the hatred of Saul for David, because notice he wants to deliver the death blow himself. He says, bring David here that I might kill him. The next support entity we see in David's life is the church. Now, I need to clarify this by saying a church is not a building, but it's a gathering of believers. And that's exactly what we see taking place in the next verses. It's a gathering of believers where the presence of God is seen. And that's where 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 David clearly runs and flees 
for help. Verse 18. So David fled and escaped, and he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and, he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. And now it was told Saul, saying, Take note, David is in Naoth and Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as a leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. There are two reactions that people can have in the midst of difficulties. They can run to the church or they can run from it. Some people run to the church in their time of difficulty, to the body of Christ. Others run from it. David runs to it. He flees to Samuel. And then they go to his school of the prophets there in Naoth. And I want you to notice what they're doing in verse 20. It says that they were speaking words of prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is declaring the word of God. It can be predictive or it can be instructive. And that's what's happening here. They're prophesying. And this gives us insight into really what the church is to be. It's to be a place where the word of God is preached and proclaimed. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, our model for ministry, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking in bread and prayers. There was teaching happening. There was proclaiming with their fellowship and their breaking of bread and their prayers. Listen, the church is not a place where people come seeking esoteric experiences. The church is not a place where people come looking for warm fuzzies. The the church is not a place where people should come looking to be entertained. The church is not a place where people come seeking to get an emotional high. I received a letter today from a lady out in Lake Placid, Michigan, I think it is. Little town she's living in out there. And she gets our tapes sent to her of our Bible studies. And she was telling me all the different churches that that she has tried to go to where all these different things are going on. It's like in this church, it's just this big, you know, high emotional type of thing. And the word's never taught. And in this one, it's this big entertainment experience. And the word is never taught. And over here, it's 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 just, you know, a bunch of opinions and the word is never taught. And she's dying. And she's living off the Bible study tapes that she receives. From us here. Guys, we are so blessed. We live in this area and we're part of a church family within Calvary Chapel that understands the importance of studying the word of God. And I I feel blessed to be able to come out here on a Wednesday night and see all of you here desiring to study God's word. I was sharing with a pastor friend of mine who pastors in another state. And he was considering going back to the state where he came from and the state where he came from. There's a lot of Calvary chapels, but where he's at there, you know, he's one of, of a few and God's doing a great work with him. And I and I told him, I said, look, I, I, I said, who where you're at is doing what you're doing. I said, there's a lot of churches, I guarantee you, where, you know, every Sunday it's a topical message about this. It's a topical series about that. But who's teaching through the Bible? You're unique. And if you leave, who's going to do it? And he's like, okay, I'm staying. (laughs) Because it is. It's a unique thing. What David needed at this point in his life was not to experience the warm fuzzies, but to be reminded of the truths of God's word. And that's also what we need. And that's why we take time to study God's word. We're told in Hebrews 4, Verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Because God's word is like a knife, listen, it cuts and it convicts. When you need surgery, there needs to be an incision. It's necessary. And that's what happens. We come to the word of God and sometimes it's like, A surgeon's knife. It's that incision. But that's how that healing takes place. Now, in this instance, Saul's guys come to Naoth 
And they hear the prophets prophesying and declaring the word. And what happens is the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they start to prophesy as well. And then watch what happens. Verse 21, it says, And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time and they prophesied also. And then also they went to Ramah and they came to the great well that is in, in Sechu. And so he asked or he also went up, excuse me, verse 24. So Saul himself is going now. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are in Naoth and Ramah. And so he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And then the spirit of God was upon him also. And he went out and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, this must have blown David's mind. His enemies are right there in the midst, but they are powerless to do anything because they're being restrained by the Holy Spirit. And this is the fourth support entity in David's life. And it's also the most important. It's the Spirit of God. You see, God wanted David to wanted to show David this fact, this truth from Zechariah four, verse six. It's not by might. It's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. It's by my spirit. David, my spirit is with you. My spirit is upon you. David prayed in Psalm 44. He said, through you, we will push down our enemies. And through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. Or in Psalm 3, he said, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone, and you have broken the teeth of the ungodly. You know, we like that kind of prayer. God, get them, break their teeth, strike them on the cheekbone. We like that. Crush them, God, destroy them. But how about this? God, save my enemies. God, fill my enemies with your spirit. God, bring those who hate me to church so that they can be overcome by the work of the spirit of God in their lives. God, so fill them with your love that every ounce of venom is drained out of them. The greatest victory would not be that our enemies would be crushed, but the greatest victory would be for our enemies to be redeemed and to be saved and to be forgiven and to be baptized in the Spirit. God wants David to know that he has support. In Jonathan, a loyal friend, in the support of his wife, in the support of a church or a gathering of believers, Samuel and the prophets, and most of all, you've got my spirit, David. And look what he can do. Look what I can do. And the Lord wants us to know that we have that same support. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you As we look at David's life here, we are encouraged of how you desire to work in our lives to help us in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the fire. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us all here to be loyal friends and help us, Lord, to be supportive spouses. And Lord, may this gathering of believers be a place where those who are in the midst of the difficulties can come in and be refreshed by your word and by the fellowship and by the worship. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for the work and the empowering of your spirit. Lord, may we go forth this week knowing it's not by might nor by power, but it's by your spirit, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.